It's been a little more than three years since Congress created a dedicated military service to focus on space, Space Force. Lawmakers are wondering whether it's time to do the same thing for cybersecurity. The Defense Department hasn't yet taken a position on that question. Officials say they're still studying the topic of a military cyber force design. But as Federal News Network's Jared Serbu reports, some members of Congress are getting impatient. Lawmakers have asked DOD for its recommendations on whether there ought to be a separate military service just for cyber forces more than once. In the 2020 Defense Authorization Bill, Congress explicitly required the department to include an assessment of the costs, benefits, and value of setting up a separate cyber force in its 2022 Cyber Posture Review. But Congressman Mike Gallagher, the chairman of the House Armed Services Subcommittee on Cyber, Information Technologies, and Innovation, says DOD skipped that part of the assignment. And I understand that where you stand depends on where you sit, but it's not the prerogative of the department to decide which part of the congressional mandate you get to comply with or, hey, we'll answer, or we'll answer it in a different report at a different time. We wanted that assessment in the Cyber Posture Review. John Plum, the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Space Policy, who also serves as the department's principal cyber advisor, says DOD wasn't intentionally ignoring the law. He says officials are now exploring that same question in response to a separate mandate Congress issued in the 2023 defense bill. That provision told DOD to conduct a detailed study on its existing cyber mission forces, including which military services should contribute personnel to those forces, how they're currently trained, organized, and compensated, and, again, whether a separate service would make sense for cyber. We are working hard on answering that problem. It's been tasked in the FY23 NDA as part of Section 1533 of the Force Generation Study. I've been involved in conversations with your uh, staff on making sure that that study going forward. I think it's a good study. I think it gives us enough time to look at, and I think it's really important. And one of the things that requires us to explore, among other options for forest generation, is a cyber service. But the department is already growing its cyber forces under the current organizational construct, where each of the existing military services contribute forces to their cyber component commands, each of which reports to U.S. Cyber Command. General Paul Nakasone, who leads U.S. Cybercom, says the command is in the middle of building 14 new cyber mission teams to complement the 133 teams it started with. The first part of it is greater capacity. Uh, we are on a road to have more teams to be able to do more missions. Secondly is clearly uh, being able to play to our strengths. What's our competitive advantage? Our competitive advantage is information. So being able to further uh, leverage artificial intelligence, machine learning. And the third piece is it's all about our partnerships. This is what we've learned. It's, it's not only the partnerships with the National Security Agency, but broadly, how do we partner with FBI and CISA? How do we look at a series of international partners that, that provide our nation greater capacity? And most importantly, perhaps, how do we partner with the private sector? This is what we've learned in Russia, Ukraine. The power of partnering with the private sector provides our nation a tremendous advantage that no other nation has. And Nakasone says the teams have already started proving out their new capabilities in new ways, including by using some of the new service-like authorities Congress has given to Cyber Command. Those include the ability to conduct its own acquisitions, direct cyber budgets, and conduct hunt-forward operations that try to defeat cyber threats before they affect networks in the U.S. The fact that authorities, policies, and capability come together in 18. We demonstrate that in the defense of the 2018 midterm elections. And then as you see everything afterwards, whether or not it was ransomware, whether or not it was uh, actions against other adversaries, whether or not it's election security, this is the key starting point. And one of the big things that uh, we were the beneficiaries of was this committee's decision in the FY 2019 NDAA to call cyber a traditional military activity that allowed us to conduct operations like hunt forward operations. 
This is tremendously important. I think what you're also talking about is that the work isn't done. And so when you think about uh, cyber, we need to make sure that a simulation capability, much in the same way we have in other domains, is res resident within cyber to, in to include and to reinforce the, the advances we've already made. But some members of Congress hold the view that if cyber really is its own warfighting domain, it deserves its own military service, just like the maritime, land, air, and space domains. Texas Congressman Pat Fallon. We're talking about cyber being the fastest growing domain. We, we need a leader for this because it's going to be the front lines of the next conflict. And when you think about the how inexpensive it is relative to the potential impact and damage that cyber can do today, it, it kind of harkens for me, Billy Mitchell comes to mind. Uh, General Billy Mitchell, who rang the alarm in the 1920s about the importance of air. We can't fight the war today. We got to fight the war tomorrow and prepare for that. And when I look at Cybercom's mission statement, it includes, one, defend the Department of Defense Information Network. Two, strengthen the nation's ability to withstand and respond to cyber attacks. And then three, conduct full-spectrum cyber operations to assist combat commanders and the joint force. And that reads well on paper, but the third one is the one that concerns me because, you know, the Navy's going to be concerned about uh, the sea with a side of cyber and the Air Force, you know, air with a side of cyber and Army land side of cyber. I strongly feel that we should be creating a seventh branch and making cyber a cyber service. Nakasone says that's ultimately a decision for Congress, but there's already a strong precedent for the model Cybercom is using today, with service-like authorities concentrated in a combatant command. That would be U.S. Special Operations Command. Special Operations is not, in, not run by any sp specific service yet. It is the elite service uh, and capability that our nation has. That's what we have modeled ourselves at U.S. Cyber Command. This idea of having special and unique authorities that were able to train and man and equip our force, an agility to maneuver. Uh, and I think that that's, a, from my pr uh, perspective of having uh, commanded now for five years, that's a really good uh, place where we're emulating towards and making sure that our focus is on doing operations against our adversaries and continuing to build our capability. But while Congress waits for an official DOD position on that front, Gallagher says the delay is part of a broader frustration lawmakers feel when it comes to how quickly the department has responded to the dozens of statutory changes and reporting requirements in the cyber arena over the past several years. Another example, he says, is a requirement in the 2023 NDAA that requires DOD to create the new position of Assistant Secretary of Defense for Cyber Policy. Before it implements the change, the department has decided to hire a federally funded research and development corporation to study exactly what roles and responsibilities the office should have and how it should operate. That report isn't expected until September, so the White House wouldn't appoint a new official to lead that cyber policy office until sometime after that. Gallagher told Plum that timeline is disappointing. We sat down a few weeks ago and you talked about just the, the number of reports that have, are foisted on you by Congress. On one level, I, I agree. I think we, we insert far too many reporting requirements into the NDAA and, and it just sort of grows and grows without sort of cleaning out uh, the number of reports that don't actually get read. On the other hand, we do it to draw attention to significant issues that we think are important without actually having to micromanage the department with statutory language. And the best way to avoid reports is to provide us quick but comprehensive answers to the questions that we're asking the department. There's got to be a better way we can get answers to these questions. And I'm happy to work with you and your team uh, to come up with that 
uh, solution because the current posture, in, in my view, is unacceptable. According to Gallagher, at the moment, DOD is delinquent on 15 separate statutorily required reports dealing with cyber issues. Jared Serbu, Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Check out Jared's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. And she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but 
How would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an wow. audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years. 
because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here, you understand the culture over here, you understand, and you gotta understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You wanna think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kinda brilliant. see all of that, you that's know? <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.